welcome. I want to, I'm going to try and get the attention of everybody who's out there with their coffee and it's really going to be a fruitless endeavor. Uh, but my name's Brad, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho and so it's great to have you with us this morning and I want to uh, invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats and we'll continue with our teaching time uh, together. Now, um, have you ever had the experience where you arrived somewhere and then when you arrived there, you thought to yourself, I do not remember actually driving here. You, you just sort of got out of your car and thought, wait a minute, the last number of minutes of my life went somewhere and clearly I drove here, but I don't actually remember turning left at this intersection, going there, moving that. Um, I had that happen last month because uh, our offices were over on Mufford Crescent for eight years. And so for eight years, I've been driving the route from my house down the hill, turn left, around the corner, right into the parking lot, left, down, take the space just beside the, uh, the pylon on the right-hand side. And so one morning, after we moved into this space, I got up, I went to work, and suddenly I was sitting in the parking lot at Mufford Crescent. And I thought to myself, I don't remember driving here. Like that last five minutes of my life is somewhere, but I don't remember it in any way. And then I caught myself and thought, and I don't even have keys to this building anymore. But it's been so ingrained in as a pattern in my life for eight years to drive to that place, I could do it without even thinking of it. My mind was totally engaged in thinking about something else. And then I was literally on autopilot driving there to that office that morning, several kilometers down the road to the wrong address. Well, neurologists and uh, biologists have language for this and an explanation for it. Uh, it's called our autonomic nervous system. And this is an amazing part of our bodies that regulates things outside of the realm of conscious thought. So for example, breathing. It's happening, you're doing it right now, but you don't have to actively and consciously tell your body, okay, take a breath in, now we're gonna let that breath out. Take a breath in, now you're doing it now because you're thinking about it. But before you started thinking about it, your autonomic nervous system was actually in charge of your respiratory system. Same thing with your heartbeat. Your heart's pumping, it's beating, but you don't have to consciously say, okay, we're gonna beat again, beat again, beat again, let's go, let's keep this up. Your autonomic nervous system just makes sure that that happens. It regulates that. And there's literally thousands of processes happening within your body right now that you are not consciously aware of, and they're all being controlled by your autonomic nervous system. They're all happening just on, essentially, autopilot. It's like the autopilot of our body, and it's super helpful because we, the way that we're made is we only have a certain amount of things that we can consciously focus on at any given time. And so the autonomic nervous system just kind of takes care of the rest of those things for us so that we can actively manage and appropriately manage our interactions with the world. And that's uh, just taking over. It's like an autopilot. And because it was like driving to the office that morning, because I'd done it so many times, I just went into autopilot. Pilot. My 
my brain opened a file called Go to the Office, and that's where it took me. And I wasn't consciously engaged in the process. What's interesting about being on autopilot, though, is that there can be a, a kind of spiritual version of that as well. A spiritual version of your autonomic nervous system, a kind of spiritual autopilot that can kick in, especially if you've been at it for a while, this Christian thing, and you can end up doing all kinds of activities that you're not actually consciously engaged in. There's no engagement with your soul, but you're still actually going through a process. It's like spiritual autopilot. But the danger of being on autopilot in that area of your life is that if you're just going through religious motions or religious actions, the danger is it can become out of congruence with other areas of your life. Because going through the motion of religious action means nothing if the rest of your life isn't in obedience to God. And we're gonna explore that a little bit uh, this morning. Because in the month of January, we've been looking at the book of Amos, one of the short books tucked away at the back of the Old Testament. And Amos is a shepherd. He's a fruit farmer, a fig farmer. And God called him to speak prophetically to the nations and also to Israel and to Judah. And his message is essentially to them, hey, you better wake up. You've gone on autopilot. You've lost your way. And so we need to course correct in some significant areas here and get back to the start Again, he reminds them and us about justice. What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to love mercy? What does it mean to walk humbly with God? And Amos brings this message of correction back into the lives of people who have gone on spiritual autopilot. And uh, the way he brought it was a series of sermons and poems and pictures as well, visions that God gave to him, and then they were written down so that we can benefit from them. Because Amos has some pretty potent things to say to us as well as to the people of his day if we're willing to listen. And as we move into the second half of the book, we start to see that God gives Amos a series of pictures of what's going on, of metaphors or images that help him and help the people really grasp the gravity of the situation. And this morning, we're going to look at three of those pictures, and we're going to explore this phenomenon of religious autopilot. Because Amos wants to help us understand that if we're just going through the motions, and we've, we've drifted into that place of just being on autopilot, that it's very difficult to engage with God and other people in a healthy and soulful way. So turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 4, or on your device. And we're going to look at the first of these three uh, images. And it's a bit of an unusual image, but to me it's one of the most um, comedic images that Amos gets to use in this book. The, the picture that starts in uh, Amos chapter 4 verse 1 is a picture of fat cows, And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. The words are going to be up on the screen. So Amos chapter 1. Amos says, Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. You who are always calling out to your husbands, Bring us another drink. 
The sovereign Lord has sworn this by his holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you is going to be dragged away like a fish on a hook. You will be led out through the ruins of the wall and you will be thrown from your fortresses, says the Lord. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel. Keep on disobeying at Gilgal. These are places of worship. Offer sacrifices each morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Present your bread made with yeast as an offering of thanksgiving. That's from the Mosaic Law. Give even extra voluntary offerings so you can brag about it everywhere. That's just the kind of thing you Israelites love to do, says the sovereign Lord. You may have been told somewhere in your life that it's not appropriate culturally or helpful to speak about a woman's weight. Amos apparently didn't get that message. He launches straight in and says, ladies of Judah and Israel, you're a bunch of fat cows. These women are conducting themselves like they're on a real housewives show. They're, oh honey, honey, bring us another glass of Pinot Grigio. But they're active participants in the economic system that oppresses people who are poor. They're crushing the needy in their society and they're making a ton of cash off of it. And at the very same time, they're doing all of those things. They're doing all of these religious activities as exactly prescribed in the law of Moses. They're going through the motions, but they are missing the point. And so God brings a message to them through the prophet Amos and says, ladies, I cannot be bought by religious rituals. The performance of religious activities does not somehow get you into God's good grace and favor. Amos says, you're going through the motions of being an excellent religious person. You're checking all of the boxes. But I'm about to render my just judgment. And ladies, it is not going to look pretty. It will be like a fat cow being led with a big hook in its nose straight to the butcher shop. But here's what intrigues me most about this picture. And that is that from the outside looking in, These women are doing very impressive good works. They're bringing a daily morning sacrifice every morning. They're tithing every three days. They're bringing extra Thanksgiving offerings and extra voluntary offerings. That is a lot of religious activity going on in their lives. So if you looked at it from the outside, you might think, wow, that person is really spiritual. But in essence, what they're trying to do is they're trying to pacify their conscience with the currency of good works. Maybe if I give enough money away to religious causes, I can convince myself and other people around me that I'm a good person. But friends... God is not mocked and God is not deceived and God certainly cannot be bought off 
with religious activity. See, the core problem wasn't that these people weren't religious. The core problem was that they were oppressing people who were poor. At the very same time, they're lounging and putting in all of their tithes and offerings and they're uh, giving to the building campaign and all of these things, they're engaged in ruthlessly and very selfishly extracting resources from other people for their own gain. They're not using their influence or their finances to ensure that justice is done. No, no, they're just putting just enough money that they've made from oppression into the offering so their conscience doesn't bother them anymore. They're going through the motions, but their hearts are not anywhere engaged in this process. And here's how we know that. See, when they make an extra voluntary offering, They're very quick to let other people know about it and brag about their good deeds. It's like when the offering plate or the bags we have here get passed around. It'd be like if you took the offering bag, put your check and went like, okay, let's take a hashtag offering bag selfie. Very bad idea. They want to let everyone in their social media feed know how much money they've given so that other people can go, wow, they must be a really good person. These are the types of people that are very good at using religious activity as image management. And it's hard sometimes not to fall into that trap because we all want to be seen as good people. I mean, we aren't intending when we go on those missions trips and take those pictures to brag about how much of an awesome, compassionate person we are. Or are we? See, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, that if you wrestle with image management and you're quite concerned about how you present yourself to other people and what other people think about you, he gives a spiritual practice that can help with that. The practice of secrecy. Do something good and don't tell a single person that you did it. Matthew chapter 6 verse 3 says, When you do good, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. For those of us who love public accolades, the discipline of doing things in secrecy can be profoundly helpful because it helps to break that tie between religious activity, doing something good for other people out of a desire to be seen as a good person and doing something good because it's something that you should do and that the Spirit has prompted you to do. And so you might want to try a couple of exercises to practice that. Maybe this week, do something good and don't tell a single other person about it. Buy a meal for somebody who is homeless and don't let anybody else know. Give money away without the expectation of a charitable tax deduction. Empty the dishwasher and don't make a big deal about it. Don't sit there at the breakfast table waiting to see if anybody notices and then when they do, you're like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I'm awesome, right? Call somebody who's lonely or whom you haven't spoken with in a while. 
Not because you want to impress God or other people about how awesome you are, but simply because God brings them to your mind and it's an expression of his wonderful and generous, lavish love. Do something in secret so that, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew, oh, you'll be rewarded, but you'll be rewarded by your Father in heaven. You don't need to do it for public accolades. And in fact, sometimes when you do, you kind of lose your reward. Here's why this can be helpful. God isn't ultimately concerned with all of the activities in your life that were done in Jesus' name. God is ultimately concerned with your heart and your heart connection with the Spirit of God because the currency of the kingdom of God is not measured in activities, it's measured in relationship. The currency of the kingdom of God is relationship, not ritual. It's not about how much money you give away. It's about the heart attitude in which you gave it. And that's what the fat cows were missing. They wanted their funds to be a way to curry favor with God. They wanted to get into a right relationship and atone for all the bad stuff that they were doing by just giving more money away. And you can't get there driving on roads of empty ritual and public optics. So let me ask you today, are there any ways, subtly or maybe not so subtly, that you are trying to earn God's favor through the performance of good deeds? And this can come up in, in all kinds of subtle ways. We can fall into the trap of thinking, you know what, if I read my Bible more, I'm sure God would love me more. Or, you know, if I went on a mission trip or I helped fund someone who went on a missions trip, I wonder how much of their trip I would have to pay for in order to cancel out all of the malicious gossip that I did this year. Let me assure you that God is much more interested in your heart than God is interested in your money. You cannot earn your way or buy your way into a relationship with God. You come through the same doorway as everybody else comes, and that is the doorway of repentance and faith, of saying, God, I acknowledge that I need you. I desire to enter into a relationship with you in an authentic and real way. And maybe for you, that's a new thought today, that God has made that way for you already, and you don't need to earn it but you do need to come on the terms that God set out and provided for you. And so today might be your day to, to start or to return to that path and that kind of thinking. And if that's you, then we'd love to pray with you today. And during our worship and response time, uh, Sylvia and myself and Pastor Wally will be available at the back and we'd love to pray with you. So that's the first image that Amos uses in Amos chapter four to try and communicate that you cannot earn God's favor by the performance of good deeds. Let's flip over to chapter eight, and we're gonna briefly look at another image, the second image that's used, and that is a ripe basket of fruit. I'm gonna read in chapter eight, verse one, and it'll come up on the screen when we get to verses four to six. Amos chapter eight, one, the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. In it, I saw a basket filled with ripe, ripe fruit, what do you see, Amos? God asked. I replied, I see a basket of ripe fruit. 
And then the Lord said, just like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will not delay their punishment again. In that day, the singing in the temple is going to turn to wailing. Verse 4, listen to this. You who rob the poor and who trample down the needy. You can't even wait for the Sabbath day. That was the day of their rest of observance in Jewish culture to be over. And the religious festivals to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out the grain with dishonest measures. You cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. You mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. And then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. Here again, Amos is highlighting the absolute incongruity between what's happening in the religious content and then in everyday life of these people. Amos says, well, you can't even wait for church to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. Amos is putting his finger on a category here. There are people who on Sundays have their hands raised passionately in worship to Jesus. And when we sing songs, they're like, yes, Jesus, I will do anything for you, Jesus. Here's my heart, Lord. You have all of me. And Jesus says, all right, I want you to reorder the economics of your life so that you spend less money on yourself and you can give more money away to help others. And they're like, my hands are going down now. I'm not going to say yes to that request. No thanks, Lord. Can we talk about something else? Keep your hands off that point of my life. You can have all of me, except that part. <laughs> or singing, Lord, you have my heart, and I'm going to search for yours. I want to know your heart. And God says, oh, that's great. I have a, a person in your life already, a neighbor who's lonely and needs you to invite them over for dinner. And we say, oh, thank you, Lord. But uh, as you know, because you created me and you know all things, I am an introvert, and therefore, I cannot have that person over for dinner. I don't have any margin for any new relationships. See, what's happening here in this passage is a very real danger that can happen to any of us. We can begin to compartmentalize our lives so neatly and tidily that essentially what happens is we have a little box that we create called the God box. It's a little compartment in our lives. And whenever something that might involve God is going to happen, we take the lid off the box and we let God come out of the little God box in our lives. So we take God out of the box maybe on a Sunday morning when we're getting ready to come for worship. Or maybe if we're going to go to a small group, we're like, okay, God, it's time for the God box to open up. You can come out now. Maybe we turn it on. Maybe the God box opens. You're like, you know, I'm in my car. I'll probably listen to Praise 106.5. That seems like a religious activity. Or maybe say, mm, when I'm reading the Bible and praying, that's when I'm, I'm talking to God. Other times, not as much. But the instant that religious activity is over, you close the box, put the lid on it, put the box back on the shelf of your life, and carry on with whatever it is that you really want to do for the rest of that day. But here's the thing that people were missing 
in Amos's day, and we miss sometimes as well. And that is that it is not just what happens during the religious moments of your life. God cares only about those things. Mondays to Saturdays matter to God just as much as Sundays. See, these people were being so dutiful in their observance of the day of rest, and they participated in all the high and holy festivals of the religious calendar of their day, like Missions Fest. And then as soon as that was over, they rushed out and went right back to living however they wanted to. As soon as they drove off the church parking lot, as soon as they left the Christian school campus, they closed the God box and forgot about it. But think about it this way. You spend 90 minutes in corporate worship per week if you come on time and we end on time. What do you do with the other 9,990 minutes? Are you really so daft to think that God pays only attention to when you start doing something religious? And then when you're doing other ordinary parts that God's like, oh, I don't care. <laughs> huh? How they treat their colleagues, I don't care about that. How they treat their siblings, ridiculous. That's not a religious activity, is it? How you spend your time, what you click through and watch on screens matters. What you do Mondays to Saturdays matters to God. And see, that's why as a church community here at Jericho, we've tried to capture this because... um, in our core purpose statement. If you go to our website and you click on the tab, why we exist, it does not say, Jack Ridge Community Church exists to provide a cluster of religious activities to suburban families like me. What we understand our mission to be as a community here at Jericho is that we exist to cultivate, I'm gonna sneeze, disciples of Jesus who embody God's love everywhere that we go. In other words, Jericho Ridge exists to help partner with God in God's deepening and developmental work in your life so that you can more deeply reflect the heart and the character of God everywhere that you go and in everything that you do. It is not just about what happens for 90 minutes on a Sunday. Well, then you might say, well, what part does Sundays play in that then? I mean, if I can do that deepening with Jesus thing on my own, right? I don't think I need to come to corporate worship. I mean, I can get better preaching than Pastor Brad online, which is true. And I can listen to Bethel, or I can listen to Hill songs. They can do the same song much better with more smoke and lights than Ron can do it which is true. So what's the point of corporate public worship gathering on a Sunday then? Well, I love the way that pastor and uh, Latina theologian Sandra Maria Van Opstel expresses this in her book, The Next Worship. She talks about how hard it is to do our work well out there in the world. You're working away for justice and you're watching the nightly news and you're getting discouraged. Things don't seem to be going the way that you think they should. They're getting worse instead of better. 
You're working hard to advocate for justice to be done in our schools, only to have an administrator or a concerned parent misunderstand what you're up to and cause havoc in your life and send an email. Partnering to see God's kingdom come and his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven is hard work and is discouraging work. And so we need each other. We need encouragement to keep going. We need to have our faith stretched and challenged by people who have different gift sets than us, by people who think differently than us. And the practice of gathering on Sundays forms that kind of reciprocal relationship between what we do Mondays to Saturdays. Sandra says it this way, our corporate worship must fuel our actions in the world and our actions in the world are sustained in and by our worship. See, the people in Amos' day, they saw corporate worship as an inconvenient interruption in their lives. And they couldn't wait for it to be over so they could rush back out and engage with what was really important stuff that they were doing in the world, which happened to be unjust. But how do you and I see it? What do we do with Sundays? What do you do outside of Sundays with what you hear on Sundays? See, some of us have like a really tidy and well-organized God box in our lives. We take the God box out on Sundays at around 10.30 a.m. and then we put God back into the box on Sundays at noon. But friends, what do you do with the other 9,990 minutes in the week? See, God cares deeply about every part of your life, not just some artificially contained religious part. In the New Testament, in the book of James, the author is speaking about a connection between what we believe and what we do. And he talks about true religion, not the brand of genes, but true religion. What does a genuinely vibrant, all week long faith look like? And he says this in James 1.27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for widows and orphans in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. In other words, religion, in order for it to qualify as genuine, has to go beyond Sundays, has to go beyond rituals. It has to touch how you and I treat people who are in need, how we think about economics, how I think about the world, and what's wise and beneficial and healthy for me to engage in. A little while ago, uh, musician David Crowder was interviewed in a magazine, and he was asked, why do you do what you do? <laughs> why do you write songs? Why do you lead worship? What's, what's the part of singing? And he's point of singing, he says, if what you're singing doesn't change what you do, then yeah, what's the point of singing? But there's a phrase that's something like, what good are love songs if they don't make me a better lover? And this is kind of the same deal. The way we sing should change the way that we think. Are you letting God use this church and the things you read and the people around you and the things that you sing to change you and shape you into a person who loves other people more? Let's look at that third image that Amos brings up in chapter five. It's a powerful image of a mighty, endless river of justice flowing on and on and on. I'm reading from Amos chapter five, 
starting in verse 21. And the people are asked a little bit about what God thinks about their religious activities and their worship services. And the response that God gives through Amos in chapter 5, verse 21 is, I hate them. I hate your show and your pretense, your hypocrisy, your religious festivals, your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. You know what I want to see? Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. Let justice flow down like a mighty river. Does this sound, verse sound familiar to you? If you're a student of recent history, it should, because tomorrow in the United States is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a day that's set aside to celebrate and commemorate the life and accomplishments of one of the champions of the civil rights movements in the U.S. and to carry on and invite others into his ongoing work. And as a pastor, Dr. King knew his Bible. He was intimately familiar with it, and in fact, this was one of his favorite verses, and he preached on it every opportunity he had, including from some of the most unlikely pulpits. In April 1963, Dr. King and others had organized a series of marches, peaceful demonstrations against unjust segregation of people based on the color of their skin. But a white judge issued a blanket injunction against demonstrations of any kind. So on Good Friday, people were all dressed up to go to worship. Martin Luther King and others were arrested for a peaceful protest and he was thrown in jail in the city jail in Birmingham, Alabama. And conditions in that jail were not good and King was not treated well. And on April 12th, an ally smuggled in a newspaper and the newspaper contained an open letter by eight white clergymen denouncing King and his methods. And the article got under King's skin and he began to write on the margins of that newspaper because they would refused to allow him any uh, paper to do any work on. And so on the margins of that newspaper, he began penning what eventually became known as his letter from Birmingham jail. And in it, King asks this question. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice when he cried, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? The question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? You see, what Amos was putting his finger on and what Martin Luther King Jr. was also highlighting was that the religious people of their day cared more about optics than justice. They cared more about how they looked to others than risking something for the cause of mercy and righteousness and love in the world. So instead, they practiced a very safe and very sedate 
form of religious piety. Oh, we're going to gather. We're going to sing a few songs. We're going to take up an offering. We're going to have a nice person tell us about how nice we are. And we're going to all go home and feel good about ourselves. And God says, if you call that religion, I hate it. God calls that hypocrisy, pageantry, pretense, and he has no place for it. He says, I'm not even going to listen to it. And you know it's bad when God says, I will not be attending your church gathering because I hate it. Friends, here's the point. God cares about your heart not about how you look. So you can dress up. You can play the part of a churchgoer really well. It's honestly not that hard. You can go through all of the activities and the actions that make you look like a quote-unquote good Christian person. But it can all be pageantry. It can all be pretense because your heart can still be filled with all kinds of evil and wickedness, but you can cover it up with khakis and a nice golf shirt. You know how I know this? Because I did it. I can recall whole periods in my own life when this was true of me. For example, I think about high school. I went to a Christian school. I was on a global mission team every year. I was leading worship teams. I would go to summer camp. I was a cabin leader at a Christian summer camp. I was going to large Christian conferences. I was involved in an accountability group. I was highly involved in my church. I looked like a model Christian teenager. But all the while, I was involved inappropriately in physical relationship with my girlfriend. I had secret addictions that I was hiding from everyone. I was living a full-on double life. But man, did I look good for my Christian friends and family. I was pretty good at keeping up appearances. I was very focused on keeping up appearances, but on the inside, I was dying. That's why I find it fascinating but perhaps not surprising that Jesus' strongest critiques were reserved for those who focused on appearance. Read Matthew chapter 23 and for the whole of the chapter, Jesus takes the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, to task for being focused on appearance. Look at verse 27. He says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, Pharisees? You're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Oh yeah, outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, hypocrisy happens any time that the image does not match the reality. And religious people can get very, very, very good at playing that game and presenting the right images. But Jesus says, you know what? That's like a graveyard. In a graveyard, you can manicure the lawns really nicely. You can paint all the tombstones a nice color, same color of white. And it can look architecturally almost beautiful. But friends, don't let the paint job distract you from what is really going on there. 
That is a graveyard. It is a place for dead bodies. And there's all kinds of rotting, yucky stuff underneath there. And that's what Jesus is putting his finger on and saying, outwardly you look like religious people, righteous people even. Inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. So friends, don't make the same mistake that I did. Ron and the team are gonna come and they're gonna lead us in two songs of response to God. And you might need to take some time this morning and just ask, am I more concerned with what God thinks about me or what other people think about me? If you're more concerned with what other people think about you, you will need to take time to repent of any known areas of hypocrisy. Anything that's being done in your life for show or for pretense, just bring that to God. Tell God, God, I need to be rid of this in my life. Because friends, God knows about it anyways. But it's important to acknowledge those areas of hypocrisy to him and ask for and receive his forgiveness. The other thing you might want to think about in this area is uh, you might be going through the religious motions trying to fit in. And if that describes you and you're trying to figure out what it is that makes a quote-unquote good Christian person here at Jericho, I want to tell you that we're all about authentic community here at Jericho. And we don't need or we don't want you to pretend that you're something that you're not. We don't want you to go through a series of religious games trying to convince us or others that you are loved and that you belong. And you know what? God doesn't want you either to do that. I'm going to pray for us and Ron and the team are going to lead us in songs that help us respond to God with authenticity and with faith. Let's pray.